I heard Lyndon B. Johnson was once given something with an interval, some information, and he was like, oh, ranges are for cattle. Give me a number. Hi everyone, welcome to a new episode of Data Stories. My name is Enrico Bertini and I am a professor at New York University where I do research in data visualization. Yeah, and I'm Moritz Stefana and I'm an independent designer of data visualizations. And actually I work as a self-employed truth and beauty operator out of my office here in the countryside in the beautiful north of Germany. <laughs> yes, and on this podcast, we typically talk about data visualization, analysis, and generally the role that data plays in our lives. And usually we do that together with a guest we invite on the show. Yeah, but before we start, just a quick note, um, as usual, our podcast is listener-supported, so there are no ads. We used to have ads, but uh, now the community <laughs> actually finances this podcast. So if you find you enjoy the show or you're a frequent listener, Please consider supporting us. You can do this with either recurring payments on patreon.com slash data stories. So you can set up a certain amount that you will give us every time we publish a new episode. Or you can also send us one-time donations on paypal.me slash data stories. And we always love when a new email comes in with a donation <laughs> from somebody around the world. It's it's just fantastic. Yeah, that's, that's just perfect. And um, yeah, also thanks to everyone who is already participating and donating. That's That's great. Thanks so much. Before we start, I just wanted to briefly talk about the Information is Beautiful Awards. I think that's been a lot of fun. So Moritz, won another award, but he couldn't really attend. So yeah. me and, and Destry, our producer, went there because the event was organized in New York and that, that was a lot of fun. So first of all, congratulations, Moritz. Thanks. I, I was yeah, I was really happy to win. I just had one one horse in the competition this time. It was my only project that was like would qualify. So I was quite nervous. So they created a specific type kind of award for for you right this year <laughs> the, the truth and beauty award you mean <laughs> what's it called no it's called unusual which is like <laughs> ambiguous for me to get an award in the unusual category it sounds like could be a good thing or a bad thing but i'll take it <laughs> so, so yeah 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 but anyways the awards um i think it's been the seventh or eighth year and i think every year the quality has been rising of the um like what is being handed in. And the long list is amazing already. The short list is actually all great works, like 50, 60, maybe yeah. 100 different projects, right? And um, so, yeah. yeah, definitely go to the website and check out all the shortlisted items, not just the winners, because there's lots of great, great data visualization work there. So um, I'm really happy these awards exist. I mean, even if I don't win, <laughs> of course, I'm even happier when I win. But just to document what's happening in the field, it, it's, it's a really great uh, resource. So we'll put a link uh, into the show notes and you looked great on stage, like accepting my prize. So I think you, you did a good job of representing me. So, <laughs> Yeah, that was a lot of fun. <laughs> okay, so let's start. Today we, have, um, we are talking about a very important general topic in visualization, which is 
uncertainty visualization. How do you visualize uncertainty? I, I know that a lot of people are interested in that. And uh, it's a very hard topic. And uh, there are quite a few people out there who are trying to make some progress in this direction. And I think we today we got some of the best people out there. We have not one, but two professors. <laughs> we have Jessica Hallman and Matthew Kay. Hi, Jessica and Matt. Hey. Hi. So as usual, we ask our guests to introduce themselves. So if you can briefly tell us about uh, what is your background and interests, and then we can dive right into the topic of today. Sure. Yeah. So I'll start. Um, I'm Jessica. I'm an assistant professor in computer science, but also in journalism at Northwestern University. Um, before this, I was at University of Washington in an information school, but um, I was kind of drawn to be both in CS and journalism. I care a lot about how data is presented um, in the public as well as in science. And so my research is um, pretty focused on information visualization. But in the last few years, I've really spent most of my time thinking about how we can create visualizations and visualization tools that better support statistical reasoning. So things like how do we visualize uncertainty, um, but also things like how do we help people um, kind of become better at uh, forming rational beliefs when they see data. So how are people sort of bringing expectations to data? Can we elicit those? Um, can we make them sort of um, better at reasoning? Um, so one thing I wanted to mention is that this past fall, Matt and I started a lab together called the Midwest Uncertainty Collective or Mu Collective. Um, so it's a cross-institution lab between Northwestern and Michigan um, with us and our students. Um, and we do a lot of collaborative work on um, uncertainty visualization and, and closely related topics. I'm Matt Kay. So I'm, I'm an assistant professor in the School of Information at the University of Michigan. Um, and I do work in human computer interaction and information visualization. And I actually kind of came to information visualization via human computer interaction. So I was doing work on personal health informatics. So trying to communicate things like, uh, sleep quality or possible factors that influence sleep quality to end users and then realizing how difficult it was to do that. And that ended up involving a lot of things related to uncertainty and kind of then moved me in that direction. So now I do a fair amount of work in information visualization on communicating uncertainty and um, communicating statistical results in ways that people can understand. And now also kind of building tools to help people who are building models generate effective visualizations. Um, and yeah, so I did my PhD at the University of Washington, which is where I ended up doing some work with Jessica. And then now that I've moved here, we've started this uh, cross-institutional lab, uh, as Jessica said, which has actually been a lot of fun putting together and like seeing our students kind of also start to talk to each other and, and do things, which I think is, is really exciting. I like the fact that you called it a collective. <laughs> yeah, I think that was Matt's suggestion, actually. <laughs> yeah, I don't know where that word came from. Does it just sound, sound good? Or there's, it just there's, sounds there's, cool, yeah. yeah. It makes yeah. us it sound more cool. like artists. Yeah, well done. Right. It does. Yeah. It does sound cool. <laughs> yeah, it's great. So the topic today, why we invited you is... Yeah. Also, your as you mentioned already, your your uh, main focus uh, right now in research it's about visualizing uncertainty. So, just to get started, what do we talk about when we talk about uncertainty visualization, Jessica? So, I would say um, 
we talk about something pretty narrow when we talk about uncertainty visualization um, among visualization researchers. Um, so what we're usually talking about is visualizing error um, that's been calculated relative to some model. Um, you could call it risk. A lot of people think of it as risk. Um, but basically, you're making some sort of estimate. You're you know taking the average of something. You're predicting maybe average unemployment for next year. And you know that there's error, um, most commonly measurement error, sampling error, so random error. Um, and so that form of error, random error, is usually what we're talking about. Um, sometimes, I mean, I've seen work in uncertainty visualization that looks a little bit at um, more systematic forms of error, like bias. Um, but I would say for the most part, it's measurement error, it's random. So this is just kind of one um, definition of uncertainty or one form of uncertainty. Um, uh, there's a lot of work outside visualization, I would say, that talks about uncertainty in, in broader terms. There's things like ambiguity, there's things like you know, missing data um, that sometimes come into what we talk about, but more often than not, I think we're we're using a pretty narrow um, notion of error. But maybe I don't know if Matt has a different view. That's uh, my sense. Yeah. So i I think that I think that's true, and i I think it's also in some ways kind of unfortunate. But um, yeah, right. I, I've, I think that I would also say there's another um, slightly less narrow but also slightly less common framing which is um thinking about uncertainty in terms of probability um mm-hmm. right so mm-hmm. yeah that's like what i meant by risk basically r- right yeah. exactly and it, and i think mm-hmm. that um it it often still it, it still ends up being narrow because you miss a lot of the more qualitative forms of uncertainty um mm-hmm. right but it you know you take error and and think about it instead as the what the say the sampling distribution or a, or a posterior distribution from a Bayesian model look like, but they, you're still essentially talking about the same idea is just with right. more fidelity, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But isn't there a difference also between say the uncertainty in how something is measured because the instrument is right. doesn't really doesn't really measure things precisely, and uncertainty coming from the fact that the 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 reality itself is uncertain. I don't know if it makes a difference, but yeah. I mean, I think one form that we don't often think about that me and Matt have been talking about with another collaborator, Lace Padilla, is something like you have a model and your model has a, a way of estimating measurement error, so random kind of error from sampling. Um, but instead, you know that your model doesn't even include all the relevant data. So there's like mm-hmm. f- maybe... Um, you know, there's, yeah, you're just, you don't have all the factors you need and you know it. And so I think of it sometimes as like small world uncertainty. So my model yeah. is like the small world of my data set and what I know about it. Whereas often there's these sort of bigger world uncertainties where, you know, we know our model probably itself is missing things. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, that, that kind of thing we don't often talk about in visualization, which I kind of agree with Matt. It's kind of unfortunate. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah, it's this idea of like model model uncertainty or model specification uncertainty, right? Like you don't mm-hmm. you don't know right, if exactly. you have the right model. Um, mm. I mean, and, there's yeah. there's always this tension in, in visualization. I think because in data visualization, we like our data to be crisp and and factual, right? right? And often, <laughs> like any method evaluation of what works well for visualizing a certain type of data, assumes sort of yeah, the data is is crisp and factual, and then we just vary the different ways we can display it. But now 
if the data starts to be fuzzy <laughs> to begin right. with, and so yeah, that right. makes everybody a bit nervous then. <laughs> I think it makes sense, yeah. The reason we probably focus on things like measurement error is it's it's very easy to um, think about visualization once you have that that set mm. of errors or whatever that you want to show. Once you have that distribution, it's just a data visualization problem on some level. Um, yeah. And so I think that has made us focus on like what's easy to visualize. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe stepping back a bit, wh- why why should we visualize uncertainty at all? I mean, we could also say we just show the best estimate that we have, right? And we show that in a nice and crisp way, and maybe put an asterisk there and say like it's based on a model, which might be true or not. Um, but so, wh- why is there a value in in showing the nature of the uncertainty itself? Uh, I mean, I think that at, at the base, simple answer to that question is just because you can allow people to make better decisions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, I mean, so Jessica and I have done this work where we were looking at visualizing uncertainty in, in transit prediction. So this isn't like a huge high-risk context, but... Um, I can at least say, okay, so you have, uh, say, predictions for when a bus is going to show up at a bus stop. Well, we've run experiments showing that given better uncertainty visualizations, you can actually lead people to make better decisions, right? So you you set up these sort of incentivized experiments where you give people payoffs for different outcomes, and then you can demonstrate that they actually make choices that lead to um, more optimal decisions. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that that's the simplest one, and I think that when you look at the the pro- proliferation of um, predictions um, and kind of um, you know machine learning kind of going out into the world, um, giving mm. people most of the times just that best estimate, right? Um, <laughs> it has error associated with it. It has uncertainty associated with it, and we should be communicating that to people because it allows them to make better decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I would yeah, agree with that. And just to add a few other cases, you know, besides like um when you have model predictions helping people make these like everyday um choices, like, you know, what route do I take? Um there's also a lot kind of at the sort of societal level where um, you know, for mm-hmm. policies to be created, they're often relying on, you know, different types of estimates that these government agencies are putting out. So, you know, should we do anything about gun control? Maybe there's analyses mm-hmm. about that. Um but, uh, you know, if we're not really showing uncertainty, which people have written about how um, even these government organizations putting out like GDP estimates, et cetera, often don't show uncertainty. Um, mm-hmm. We really like we're just as a society making bad decisions. Um, and I think some of the other compelling use cases that um, uh, include things like experimental science, which Matt and I have both thought about a lot. So, um, you know, for presenting results from experiments that we've run there's a lot of uncertainty there, but if we don't really emphasize that, you know, further or subsequent researchers might think, you know, oh, I'm going to keep doing research on this thing because, (laughs) you know, this weird treatment because they found an effect when, you know, in reality, a lot of, I think what we're seeing with like experimental um, results from certain fields, not replicating is probably uh, because we're not really emphasizing or visualizing the uncertainty in a way that people are getting it. Mm -hmm. And then there's like, you know, other sort of life and death situations, um, like, you know, whether like, um, one of our, our collaborators here, um, Lace Padilla works a lot on things like, um, disasters. So mm-hmm. when people have to make these like really important life or death situa- uh, decisions, like, should I evacuate if a hurricane's coming? Um, sure. Yeah, you know, yeah. like there's, yeah. 
all sorts of uh, reasons why you need the uncertainty there. But I think, yeah, there's also lots of rationales for why, um, like Moritz was bringing up, that we don't need it. <laughs> and yeah. I was playing devil's advocate. Yeah, yeah. No, but I think that's the problem. Yeah. yeah, maybe we can talk about that later or something, because yeah, I have lots yeah, of thoughts yeah. on that. But. Yeah, I was wondering, I think maybe another aspect here is the fact that I think we already know from some experimental evidence that people tend to be persuaded quite a lot by numbers, right? So if you present something and you have some numbers attached, people tend to think that this is more, um, I don't know, credible, right? Mm -hmm. But then we have also the problem that most of the communication that you get from, from the media is that it's always without these, these uncertainty information, right? There is always median of something, right? And then yep. people start de debating about it as if that's the ultimate truth mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. right and i think that's that's a much uh, yeah as a i don't know broad also consequences in the papers, they say the unemployment rate goes up 0.2 percent right but you yeah. never get the actual yeah. like error rate which is probably 0.5 or something you know? and, then, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and totally. then it's a meaningless statement yes. because right. uh, well, who knows what's going on right and you, you get these um, i mean hum as humans were kind of like aggressive dichotomizers right um yeah. we we love to put things into buckets and say oh this this went up or it didn't go up or you know there is an effect here and i can publish it or there isn't an effect here and i can't publish it um mm -hmm. and i right. i think mm -hmm. a lot of what i think is important about uncertainty visualization is that if you do it well you can try to prevent that dichotomania um mm -hmm. and mm -hmm force people to confront uncertainty. And I think right. that's a lot of what we tried to do. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I have all sorts of thoughts about forcing people because <laughs> I think on some <laughs> level, like people, it's just like, it's just really hard problem. Like it's cognitively complex to be trying to reason with like two intervals rather than two points. Like it's mm -hmm. just hard. I think, mm -hmm. yeah. um, I heard Lyndon B. Johnson was once um, given something with an interval, some information, and he was like, oh, ranges are for cattle. Give me a number. So it's, I think that, that attitude is like um, people just really don't want any sort of distribution because it's complicated. But so, yeah, um, Matt and I have done a lot of thinking about, you know, how do you kind of bring that information in in a way that um, they end up taking it into account. And mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Okay, but so let's say that we do want to visualize uncertainty, right? So now, how how do you do that? I think there is there's a very large uh, space of of solutions out there, and uh, it's not totally clear to me what the state of the art is either. So I'm wondering if you can walk us through what exists already, what the options are. Sure. Yeah, I guess I'll start, and Matt can follow up. So that I think. Yeah. The way I think about it a little bit, uh, or one kind of distinction would be, um, you could show the entire distribution at once. So you have some sort of distribution, um, you know, showing or, or representing your error. You could show that all at once in something like an interval, um, which is kind of a, a summary of the distribution, um, Uh, or you could show, you know, something like uh, even a histogram or a probability density function. Um, uh, and then on the other hand, um, and then there are other sort of uh, static plots you could use. Um, but uh, then on the other hand, you could show people kind of a set of draws from that distribution that you're trying to show them. Um, 
So uh, kind of those two big buckets of techniques, I think, are very different. Um, so um, like within the sort of um, first bucket, you're showing people the entire distribution at once. So that uh, I mentioned things like intervals, intervals themselves are complicated. So they could, I mean, Matt and I have talked a lot um, in our work about how, you know, things like confidence intervals um, are not um, usually interpreted correctly by people. So confidence interval is um, describing uh, like the sampling distribution. So it's trying to um, give you a sense of the error and whatever you're estimating a mean or whatever. Um, but the way in which it's constructed um, is uh, just very difficult to describe. It's using kind of frequentist processes um, that uh, make people want to think that the confidence interval is actually the interval that's going to contain the true, you know, population mean 95% of the time when in reality that's not the right interpretation. Oh, that's um, what I thought. Damn yeah, it's not. It's actually it's the interval that if you constructed intervals in that way, 95% of the intervals would contain uh, it. So it's uh, there's just weird misinterpretations. Yeah. On the other yeah, hand, right. you could have intervals that just, um, you know, are, are kind of uh, more like a coverage interval. So 95% of the data itself, the actual observations will be mm. in here. Yeah, um, so... I've, yeah, Matt, go ahead. <laughs> I, I think this is actually it's it's worth mentioning that this is a this is a spot where we're talking about uncertainty that isn't necessarily error, right? When you start talking right, about yeah. coverage intervals or predictive intervals, right? So the mm. so it, it can be useful to distinguish between um, maybe predictive uncertainty or sometimes we make this distinction between aleatory and epistemic uncertainty, but I don't I don't like terms like that because they're um, I don't know. I think statisticians often use words that are more complex than they need to be, right? So <laughs> you, you, might, you might think of error as something about, like the uncertainty in a parameter or a mean or some statistic you're estimating. Let's say if I right? have like a temperature forecast for tomorrow, is that like what? And then we don't know if it's going to be 12, 13, or 14 degrees Celsius. What type of uncertainty would that be? In that? So I would think about that as um, predictive uncertainty. Um, mm, right. So mm. you you have a, a predicted one way of setting it up is you have a model that gives you a predicted distribution of possible temperatures, right? right. Mm. Um, and then you construct an interval by taking, say, like the central ninety five percent of that predicted distribution, and I would call that a predictive interval. Um, mm -hmm. In contrast to, uh, and, and so you call that aleatory uncertainty. Aleatory comes from uh, think something Latin about rolling dice or gambling or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> right. So it's a, you're taking another draw from some predicted distribution. Mm -hmm. And the model will already give you like a full distribution or maybe you let it run a thousand times. And so you have a thousand results and, and so on. And then the challenge is more how can I summarize or visually present now this distribution? Right, exactly. And and this is where you also start getting into sort of philosophical debates. You know, are you fitting a Bayesian model? Are you fitting a frequentist model? Are you doing something else? Um, uh, you know, I I tend to mostly just get annoyed by those philosophical debates, but um, <laughs> they exist. <laughs> yeah, I think that like one important point. Um, well, I think one thing that I feel or have seen people not do so well, we actually have a paper on it, um, with confidence intervals, I think it, in particular is uh, 
people don't really understand the relationship between like your sample and then um, the distribution. So your sample distribution, like the actual measurements and then the distribution of whatever you're estimating, say a mean, which is much lower variance. Um, so I think there's a lot of confusion even about like, what's the underlying distribution we're talking about? Um, yeah. The fact that we even have a model sometimes, I think people don't have a very clear sense of. Um, and intervals, I think part of the problem with them is they're used across the board for all these things. Um, you know, there's, and they look the same in all of these cases, whether they're 95% confidence interval or whether they're just showing you, you know, standard deviation or whether they're showing you like a coverage interval, mm -hmm. um, which is just the underlying data distribution, not a sampling distribution. Um, yeah, sure. So what are other options? Right. Yeah. So we can talk about, I guess, what we've been doing. Um, mm -hmm. So I, we've been kind of focusing on a couple different, um, I would say, outcome-oriented or sample-based techniques. So rather than showing you some representation of your distribution, um, you're going to draw samples from it and show those. So um, the, the technique that I've been working on for a while um, uh, is hypothetical outcome plots, where we're basically going to take the distribution and um, draw samples from it and then visualize those samples one at a time as frames in an animation um, so that you're basically seeing the uncertainty kind of play out. Um, you're not able to just focus on the whole distribution at once. Um, so uh, it's kind of a way of, um, I think of it as more of a way of sort of forcing people to take into consideration the variance because you're actually, um, if you're not going to actually add the mean as a mark to it, then all they can see is kind of the um, you know, draws from the distribution one at a time. They have to kind of uh, use um, the visual system um, or uh, to kind of try to estimate like what the full distribution looks like. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, we've been doing some research on these um, uh, and there's certain reasons why once you move to this sampling um, paradigm where you're showing um, like samples drawn from a distribution uh, one at a time, there are some benefits. Like if you're trying to show any sort of joint probabilities or multivariate probabilities, um, it becomes a lot clearer or you're, you're able to basically estimate those much better. Um, so if you imagine like the typical thing would be like um, you could show um, two bars in a bar chart, like maybe somebody did a scientific experiment and they have two bars. Um, one is like the control group and one is the treatment group in their study. And they put error bars on both of them. So you can see like the mean, you know, whatever blood pressure in the control, the mean blood pressure in the treatment and the, the error in both of those estimates. Um, it can be hard to answer certain questions um, about uh, that data from a visualization that's showing you both distributions like that. So if I wanted to know, for instance, you know, if I ran this study again, um, uh, what's the probability that I would still see a treatment effect that's larger than the control? You, it's really hard to answer basically from um, a static depiction because it's uh, that data is just not expressed. So when you're, if you were to show someone, you know, the same bar chart, but where the bars are changing height, each frame in an animation, uh, you can begin to estimate some of these multi -prob or multivariate probabilities. Mm -hmm. So um, like the hypothetical outcome plot stuff, um, I think there's been a few cases in the media that maybe people would recognize. Um, so things uh, like the New York Times has done um, various types of election predictions um, using where they're showing you actual animated samples of, of draws from a distribution. 
Um, I think the most notorious one, <laughs> which is kind of a conversation topic in itself, is the New York Times um, needle yeah. that they used on 2016 presidential it election night. Or, many people. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know Matt has thoughts on this. So, I mean, I think that, so the thing about the needle is it, it forces people to confront uncertainty. Um, and uh, I think this actually goes back to that question of, of, you know, why do we need to do uncertainty visualization in, in the first place? Well, a lot of people got anxious about the needle because they, it, they were forced to confront uncertainty in something that they actually cared about. Um, and I think the right. thing about effective uncertainty visualization is when you do it well, uh, you can make people anxious, but they should be anxious if it's something they care about. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe let's explain <laughs> briefly what it did. So it was the the prediction of who will win the election 2016. And it was a little uh, confusing, actually. Yeah. I don't, Matt, do you want to explain it? Or? Yeah. So I, I mean, I ended up. Uh, I talked to Kevin Queeley, who uh, when I was at OpenViz about how the thing worked, um, and also read a blog post that they wrote that I never save the URL for so I can never find it again. But um, <laughs> basically the way that the thing works from my understanding is so that this was a live prediction of the um, difference in the, the vote margin um, between Hillary and Trump, right? Um, as the returns were coming in. So as the returns are coming in, they're mm -hmm. updating some model to predict this vote margin. The model generates a distribution describing their uncertainty in the margin, right? So the, the margin is some number between uh, like negative 100 and positive 100, where zero means that they both get the same number of votes, right? And what it's doing is uh, every 30 seconds, the model gets updated and it generates a new distribution describing the uncertainty that is I believe just summarized as a mean and a standard error or standard deviation because it's predictive distribution. That's then being shoved into people's browsers and then some JavaScript in the background is drawing uh, samples from this distribution, uh, which makes a needle kind of jitter um, on this scale from, you know, Hillary wins to Trump wins, right? Right, right. But the needle was jumping much faster than the data was updating. Right. right? So, so, one, so the needle it did not reflect the data updates, but it reflected. It, it reflected was a, the a metaphor, more or less, or or like a hypothetical, hypothetical outcome plot, basically. Right. So well, so it it, it was a hypothetical outcome plot, um, and it it was being updated every thirty seconds, and then also was jittering in between that yeah. to to demonstrate the uncertainty. Although yeah. it was actually the interesting thing about the needle is it wasn't jittering. Uh, it was actually not. Uh, faithfully representing the uncertainty it was actually not jittering enough. So it was only jittering in the central 50% interval. Um, um. It should have actually been <laughs> jittering a whole lot more, uh, which is one of the things that I, I think is un I don't particularly like about it. I, I do really like the needle, but uh, um, I think yeah, there are things too. that I would I would change. One of them is that. The, the other one is exactly this other problem, which is something that we call uh, a deterministic construal error, which is um, uncertainty visualizations where people misinterpret something that's representing as uncertainty as something that's representing something deterministic. In this case, thinking that the jitter was representing real-time updates, right? Hmm. Right, hmm. yeah. That was a big part but of the problem. But you could also read night. it as sort of a faulty device. So I was thinking about, like, it's a sensor that doesn't quite work, or it's a machine that's <laughs> under right. a lot of pressure, <laughs> lots of steam, you know? And so, and I think in a way it gave a good metaphor to... Um, 
okay, it's a it's a very like a vivid vivid process that goes in all kinds of directions, and <laughs> we we see like a shaky picture of that. So I think from that end, it, maybe it was a good metaphor overall. I think it was a great metaphor. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the metaphor they're trying for. But I think it was just the hard problem to is some people it. got that and some didn't. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. As it is with metaphors. Yeah. Right. So. <laughs> yeah, I think that one is kind of an, uh, perhaps a symptom or the way that was received is perhaps a sim symptom of the fact that, um, you know, even leading up to the election, we weren't seeing things like that. Like if we'd seen mm. the dial all along um, and, you know, had been forced to think about the uncertainty in these predictions all along, maybe it wouldn't have been as big a deal. I'm pretty sure it wouldn't have been, <laughs> but um, sure. you know, the yeah. fact that we rarely see uncertainty in a way that we have to take it into account, I think is also, um, you know, a big part of the problem. Um, there's kind of a norm to, to not show it or to show it in a way that it's easy to just dichotomize. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, I think like, you know, you would see these like predictions leading up to the election um, you know, you could go to like what, whatever it was, the upshot page, and it would just say, you know, there's like a 75% chance that Clinton's going to win, or it was even higher than that for a while. Um, but I think it's the very notion of probability is hard. Um, so, you know, people just want to round that up. You know, I, it was like, you know, it looks like Hillary Clinton's going to win because she has a, a reasonably higher than 50% chance. Mm. Um, and so, so I think it's maybe percent in people's mind, exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. That's, and that's so I think that's why uncertainty visualization is like it kind of needs to be a policy. <laughs> but I think we're pretty far from that. Um, mm -hmm. So that people become better at just using it and more uh, more comfortable with it. So it's not like something like this gets rolled out and like half the people don't even seem to get that it's uncertainty. You know, like mm. the deterministic construal error. I think that was that was what you were talking about, right, Matt? Like yeah. the. They don't even, they think that's the actual latest prediction right. based, like poll right. results are coming in every second and, or yeah, every, yeah, right. you know, 500 milliseconds. Yeah, or whatever, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, but let's talk more about techniques because I think we all agree, okay, it should be visualized, but we also agree, okay, it depends a bit on the task. You need to be careful to hit the right metaphor. So what else is out there? What other things can people do to show uncertainty or make it accessible? So I, mean, I think that, yeah, Matt was maybe should talk about this. The counterpoint to hypothetical outcome plots, like if you don't want to use, like if you think animated uncertainty is too much, like people are going to freak out the way they did for the dial then there are other discrete outcome techniques. Yeah, and and or I mean, if you're in a situation where animation just isn't possible, right? right? Feasible. Um, yeah. The, uh, so there, there's two that I think I would mention. So so one actually follows right from the um, election prediction example. So there was an interesting example of what we normally call something like an icon array, which is often used in medical risk communication. And the idea there is like you give. Uh, a grid of say like a thousand possible outcomes and you just color them or use little icons or something that um, to indicate the different possible values, right? So maybe it's something like um, you're looking at a, a well, actually I'll, I'll use the election example. So that, so you might show a grid of a thousand possible outcomes and um, color, color them one color, uh, well, let's say blue if Hillary wins and red if Trump wins, right? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. There was a nice example of this. Uh, there was a Washington Post article after the election um, showing probabilistic predictions from a couple of different poll aggregators. Um, I think Huffington Post and The Upshot and uh, 538, where they had predicted, like 538 had predicted maybe like a 
80% chance, or maybe it was like a 75% chance that, that, uh, Hillary was going to win. Um, and the other ones were more certain. So it was maybe like 90 and 95%, right? Um, well, if you look at that as a grid, they were actually doing it in a, in a fancier version called a risk communication theater. So you look at it as like a, a seat map to a theater where I color some of the seats, um, one color if Hillary's going to win, some uh, another color if Trump's going to win, and then I say I've given mm-hmm. you a random ticket to a seat in the theater. Um, <laughs> if you end up in a red seat, Trump wins the election. But when you look at that kind of visualization, the eighty-five percent is no longer easy to round up to a hundred percent. It actually mm-hmm. looks mm-hmm. fairly clear that there's a decent chance Trump will win. So that's interesting. Right? Yeah, yeah, and and I think just that re-expression is one way of getting people to to more easily understand uncertainty. It's weird. Yeah, I have the same with false positives so i always i always have this hard time to understand conditional probabilities unless mm-hmm. i see it it's um yeah well, that, it's, it's 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 hard <laughs> yeah same for me yeah and that's where this idea comes from really the, this frequency framing or discrete outcome or however you call it um there was this research um on bayesian reasoning so reasoning about conditional probability and when you express things in this way, you can actually reason about conditional probability more easily, right? So I give you a chart, uh, an icon array of possible outcomes of um, this procedure you're going to undergo to con- to treat some problem, health problem you have. But then I can start doing things like, you know, coloring them differently, depending on if you get a complication or something. And then you can start reasoning about, well, how many of these dots where the procedure is successful still have some complication, right? Which is a question of conditional probability that, you know, you could do with arithmetic, but uh, is hard to do. Right. Yeah. I think also on the frequency framing, like that's kind of the um, motivation behind the techniques we've been developing, like hypothetical outcome plots, and then some of the other discrete ones, um, this work in Bayesian reasoning. But I would add that a, there's kind of another distinction um, between the animated versions where you're seeing one draw at a time and the the ones that aggregate. Um, so like an icon array is showing you everything at once. Um, there's been work, I think it's, it's we still haven't really brought it into viz um, or uh, you know, talked about it explicitly, but there's work in JDM also talking about how there's a difference um, in experiencing distributional information um, yourself, kind of actually experiencing it, experiencing it versus having it described to you. So um, people tend to make decisions a bit differently based on whether something like probabilities are described versus experienced. And so I think there's there's a few kind of of these underlying differences with some of the outcome based stuff um, compared to mm. kind of the more traditional like showing showing you a density plot showing you error bars. Mm. Yeah. So I think we're we're kind of still I, learning about I, them. I'd like to move the discussion to more methods. Um, oh right, yeah. Because we don't have terribly much time left as well. I think. Uh, uh, well, yeah. I, I was going to mention one other static approach that um, we've been. Uh, we've developed this uh, idea of a, of a quantile dot plot, um, which is basically an icon array, but for a continuous variable, right? So you're, mm-hmm. you're, you're taking these possible outcomes and you're stacking them up on say like a number line. Um, and it allows you to do similar sorts of things as with an icon array, but you can, you can estimate things like intervals kind of arbitrarily, but it's more perceptually effective than like a density. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of a mixture of, of, Accountable discrete representation and and uh, and a, like a distribution. Yes, exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, best of both worlds potentially. Yeah. I think there's <laughs> one other technique worth mentioning um, that the 
like along the same lines as trying to force people to take into account the uncertainty. Um, there are some interesting work um, uh, on what's called value suppressing color palettes to show uncertainty. Um, Matt might know the actual algorithm better than I do. I haven't read the paper in a while, but it's basically like you're using, you're trying to hide the colors. Um, so if, you know, color is representing value in some heat map type style visualization. You're actually going to mix gray with the colors when they're more mm. uncertain so that mm. your eye actually has a harder time of reading the value back from the color. Yeah. That's something I also did visualizing wind prediction data. And I had big debates with the scientists because they had 51 different models and they were mm. like, you cannot summarize them in a meaningful way. We have to show the full distribution. But I was fighting for showing the best guess and then using opacity to, to make it harder to read right, the ones yeah. that are more uncertain. Mm -hmm. And because they we wanted to show a map, right? And so there was a limit of how much you can do at once, right? And yeah, so maps are hard. it's maybe not really reflecting the full distributions that well, you know, as the other techniques, but just making the more uncertain stuff harder to read. It's, it's a very basic technique, but also one I think that it's can... It's kind of smart, I think. In some <laughs> cases, do exactly the right job, right? Right, yeah. exactly. I think it can yeah. I think it can be good. The, the issue I had with value suppressing uncertainty palettes um, is... You, I think that you need a principled, principled way of deciding how much to suppress, um, and that's actually <laughs> yeah. a hard problem. I that's think you can see, right. you can yeah. go to these kind of like models of of how people perceive probabilities. Um, there's this one model called the the linear and log odds model. I'm not going to try to describe it right now, but basically you. There's some work in cognitive science that you might be able to take and say, oh, here's a principled way we could adjust probabilities. It's mm. not something that anyone has done yet. It's something I'm interested in doing, but we you know, haven't gotten there yet. Yeah, but maybe these techniques, also like using blur or using sketchy rendering, mm. which some people do to make something more sketchy that is more uncertain, maybe more helpful for just indicating, oh, there's more uncertainty here and less over there. Right, but I think, yeah. If you're really interested in the exact, you know, nature of the uncertainty, then, yeah, then they... Yeah, they I think the task there up. matters a lot. Like, sometimes yeah, maybe exactly. all you want to say is, like, these are kind of uncertain. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. and sometimes that's totally fine. But I think we default in visualization to thinking that, or the techniques we've used for a long time, um, you know, really only support that kind of task, where you can kind of tell what's more uncertain and less uncertain. But, like, when you're using these visual encodings that just aren't very effective, like, hard to read... Um, you know, you're kind of like throwing away information. Like if you have the full distribution and you're showing it in a way that people can only pick out three different levels of probability, then, you know, like it's, I don't know, to me, it goes against the, the whole reason for visualizing things. Um, you want to actually allow people to, you know, draw inferences on that data that you have. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. We've been discussing about alternative techniques, but ultimately, if you want to say that one technique is better than another in a certain context. You have to figure out how to, yeah, how to evaluate them, right? Which sounds really complicated to me. So I'm wondering, I know that you've been doing some work in this space as well. So how, how do you actually know that one technique is better than another in one, what type of context? I think, yeah, so we've been talking about this. Um, and 
I mean, I think there's kind of a distinction between how do we currently say that we know which visualization techniques are better and how should we, <laughs> yeah. like what evidence should yeah. we be looking for? And so, yeah. I mean, for context, um, we did a study where we looked at like about 90 papers that had published um, uncertainty visualization techniques and then done some sort of study to figure out which ones worked better. Um, and what we found was that um, the vast majority are either just asking people um, to basically read data back, so asking them to report some probabilities that they saw in the visualization, um, and then scoring them on how accurate they are, how close are you to the true probability, so kind of like how well do people read the data. Um, and then um, there were also a number of others that were asking people basically for some sort of self-reported um, kind of uh, sense of how satisfied they were. So that might be like, how confident do you feel about your judgments looking at this visualization? Or, um, you know, how much do you like using this visualization? How helpful does this seem to you? Um, so that was like the vast majority of what we saw was doing that. And I think mm. um, there's problems with both of those. So I think the real hard problem um, or the reasons why evaluation is so difficult with uncertainty visualization is that, um, you know, people do want to avoid it. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we like there's kind of a, an obvious moral reason to show uncertainty because it's giving people more information and they can make more informed decisions. Um, but the fact that people try to um, just evade uncertainty, so they try to round things up, um, makes it, I think, really hard um, to know if uncertainty is helping unless you're actually looking at, at how they make some sort of action or how they make some sort of decision um, where there's actual kind of incentives. Um, so a lot of, I think, what we've seen in the study literature is just kind of looking at, well, when you ask people to read the data back, can they do it? And then do they like the feeling of this visualization? Like, does it, <laughs> does it seem helpful to them? And I think those are totally the wrong thing. And I guess not yeah. totally the wrong thing in that like uncertainty cognition is very complex. There are aspects of it that of course depend on whether you can read the, the probabilities. There are aspects of it that do depend on this kind of like affective or emotional reaction you have. Um, but I think the really core stuff um, that Matt and I have been working on is, um, uh, but still, I mean, we're still kind of early in it too, is just how do you actually set up experiments um, to test these things where you're looking at decision-making under realistic conditions. Um, so I think it's the uncertainty uh, visualization evaluation is just fundamentally hard because uncertainty comprehension or cognition is fundamentally difficult mm. even to understand, mm. but also mm -hmm something that people avoid. So it's like, how do you tell when something's actually going to work in the real world, given that, you know, people might want to just look at the mean. Um, and I feel like that's where we haven't evaluated much at all. So I'm yeah, sure but then it comes back to, to tasks, right? And I think that's a very right. interesting yeah. perspective to not yeah. just say we need to visualize uncertainty. Um, because I think, yeah, it's, um, the, the term is very broad, as we have seen. There's many types of uncertainty. And then people will want to do different types of things with it. And this is hard too to figure out exactly what people want to do, but that will make it easier maybe than right. yeah. Yeah. the end of, uh, end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I see all of the, those things like perceptual aspects, they are, you know, necessary, but not sufficient. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. And the other way I kind of try to usually put it is, um, you know, just because someone, just because you can demonstrate that someone can pull the probability out of a, a visualization doesn't mean that they know how to use it to make the right decision. Um, right. Yeah. And that's really the hard 
the hard problem. And so, yeah, as, as Jessica said, I mean, we've been doing some incentivized decision-making experiments, and I think that's where a lot of our work is kind of heading. Right. And I hope that a lot of other people's will as well. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's been a hot topic. I mean, we mentioned it last year as, as one of the, the re review as one of the mm -hmm. hot topics of 2018. And that's, I have a feeling it's not going to go away 2019. <laughs> yeah. So, I hope not. <laughs> Yeah. 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 I think sometimes yeah. it's hard to define the task. Like as a designer, you're creating a visualization and it's hard to know like um or define what should people do if I show them the error information and I think that's part of um maybe why we don't see people using uncertainty or showing it as much as we might like is just that it's um, you know, it's rare that there's a very clear decision to be made from a visualization. Like, I think there often is a decision, but it can be hard to define. And sometimes what people should do with uncertainty is not clear. And that's why you need these kind of formal decision frameworks to to think about it. So it's, I think it matters, but it's hard um, to sort of uh, evaluate that way or um at least in in like practice when you're designing something and you you don't have the ability to run some controlled experiment. I'm now curious about isn't another aspect whether how people feel certain about something according after seeing different representations, right? I guess that's subjective but it's important, right? I think there are there are some things that people shouldn't feel too certain about. Right. And maybe they they may feel certain just because the way this is represented doesn't take into account uncertainty, right? Right. This is this sort of like you might you might do something like elicit subjective confidence in yeah. a decision or right, something. Right, yeah. But if you yeah. don't show them the uncertainty, they might be really confident yeah. in a decision that is poor. Yeah. Right. There's a weird relationship, I think, between what we like or like what makes us feel good and what's good for us. Yes, right. <laughs> in this exactly. domain. Yeah. We yeah. want to believe some things, right? And uh, Right. Yeah. It's hard. <laughs> this, is, this is why I always I get back to this idea of, you know, uh, anxiety being proportional to uncertainty, yeah. right? It's something yeah, you care yeah. about and and you're yep. uncertain about it. You know, yeah. sometimes you should feel bad. Yeah. <laughs> right. Which is weird for designers. <laughs> like, yeah. I think that's why there's this fundamental tension. I'm wondering if we can conclude maybe by giving some practical advice to people who want to either learn more about visualizing uncertainty. As far as I can tell, there's no established, I would say, textbook or even the material is very scattered. <laughs> yeah. And, um, so how do you actually learn all of these things? And then um, similarly to practitioners, how do they get a better sense of which tools they can use, which methods? I think this is... There's, there's so much to do in this sense in, in this space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> I'm just trying to <laughs> rack my brain. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, go ahead, Matt, you can start. Yeah, I, I, I mean, um, one, one thing that has happened very recently, there, there's a visualization book that... Um, I'm Klaus gonna mispronounce Wilke? it. Klaus Wilke. Yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't. know. That's what I was gonna it. say. Yeah. So he he wrote a chapter in a in a visualization book that he's currently writing on uncertainty visualization that talks about a lot oh. of the more modern techniques that we've um, been talking about here. Uh, okay. And I I think that's that's probably one of the better references that it exists. I I had this ambitious plan of starting to write a book on uncertainty visualization, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. which is 
probably at some point still going to happen in my copious mm-hmm, free time, but mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> um, the, actually the grammar of graphics. I mean, I, oh. I really liked the chapter on uncertainty in that book, um, which oh, is kind of okay. like a mm. classic visualization book. It's a little mm. researchy or scholarly, but, um, I feel like the way the treatment of uncertainty is very clear in that book. Mm-hmm. Um, on some level, just like reviewing, just basic stats on like inferential stats is probably not what people want to do, but right. like the notion of a sample <laughs> and a population and how you, how you estimate um, and, and what sampling error is. I feel like if um, you know, maybe someone needs to create an accessible resource. That's like three mm-hmm, pages yeah. of like so what you kind should of know. Explainer. There's, yeah. there's right. that uh, seeing theory um, kind oh, of yeah, animated nice stats textbook thing, which is, is pretty good if, if you want, the frequentist perspective on it. And I think if it, I, I kind of tend to end up usually working in a, in a Bayesian mode. If you want the Bayesian perspective on it, um, the first, I think two chapters of Richard McElrath's uh, statistical rethinking yeah. is another good, um, resource or he has, he has some online lectures, uh, cause it's, it's designed as a class. So, um, that's another place to go for that kind of basic idea of, probability um yeah i was also gonna say howard Weiner has written a few books yeah. um mm, yeah that are kind of almost tufty-esque i don't know if you yes. would appreciate that comparison but mm. yeah. they're kind of they walk you through examples and i think lots of um, case studies yeah much more accessible than some of the other stuff we're suggesting although like yeah. the mcelroy's book i think is like really fun to read yeah um i like to think that you don't have to care about stats but i don't know for sure <laughs> yeah, I've, I guess another thing that I've I've been doing lately is I have a um, is I end up often answering uncertainty visualization questions on Twitter, um, and my approach to that now has been to compile the various things that I've constructed into a repository on GitHub. So that's another oh. possible um, cool. resource for some of the. There's a lot of examples of like hops and some. Uh, quantile dot plot stuff on there, um, and a few other even weirder things. I did a, I did one that was on um, uncertainty and correlation heat maps, uh, which uses this kind of dithering technique for uncertainty. Um, mm-hmm. which is yeah. kind of cool and interesting. Okay, so we're gonna add all these links in our show notes. So um, yeah, make sure to go to our blog post and, and check all these useful links. Thanks so much for uh, all these good tips and thanks so much for coming on the show. I think that's, uh, again, we, we could go on forever, I guess. It's such a complex and interesting topic. Um, yeah, thanks so much, Jessica and Matt for coming on the show and explaining some, some of it. (laughs) Thank you. you. (laughs) Yeah. Anytime we'll come back. Yeah. Yeah. Love to be back. (laughs) For sure. Yeah. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Hey, folks. Thanks for listening to Data Stories again. Before you leave, a few last notes. This show is now completely crowdfunded. So you can support us by going on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash data stories. And if you can spend a couple of minutes rating us on iTunes, that would be extremely helpful for the show. And here's also some information on the many ways you can get news directly from us. We're, of course, on Twitter at twitter.com slash data stories. We have a Facebook page at facebook.com slash data stories podcast, all in one word. And we also have a Slack channel 
where you can chat with us directly. And to sign up, you can go to our homepage, datastory.es, and there is a button at the bottom of the page. And we also have an email newsletter. So if you want to get news directly into your inbox and be notified whenever we publish an episode, you can go to our homepage, datastory.es, and look for the link you find at the bottom in the footer. So one last thing we want to tell you is that we love to get in touch with our listeners, especially if you want to suggest a way to improve the show or amazing people you want us to invite or even projects you want us to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. And don't hesitate to get in touch with us. It's always a great thing for to hear from you. So see you next time. And thanks for listening to Data Stories. 